0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. You know, virtually every culture has fairy tales. And there's some things that are distinct about uh, fairy tales and are common. Fairy, fairy tales are, are for children. And there are some features about uh, almost every fairy tale that are the same. So for starters, there is the fact that typically a fairy tale takes place in a land that in some way is similar to ours, but yet the possibilities in those worlds are are even greater than we can imagine. So there might be a fairy tale land where uh, there, the animals can talk, or where there are um, fairy godmothers, or there's magic, or whatever, and there's just. Possibilities beyond what we can comprehend for, for our world. That, that's one thing about, about fairy tales. Another thing that's interesting about fairy tales is um, in that land, It's just because it's magical, it doesn't mean it's like candy land. I mean, it's not all good. There's dangers. In fact, one of the thing about about fairy tales is often in the story, people are revealed for who they actually are, good and bad. So Little Red Riding Hood gets to her grandmother's house, and that's not grandma there in the bed. You've got in Snow White, the story of Snow White, you've got this little old woman that uh, wants to give her an apple. Well, eventually it's revealed to be the wicked queen, the, uh, the wicked witch. You've got, even in The Wizard of Oz, you have this great and powerful and terrible Oz, and it turns out that behind the curtain, it's just a little old man pulling the strings. But also operates the opposite. So it's also sometimes the, the bad is revealed to be good. So the frog turns out to be a prince. Or the, the princess, who's going to be the bride of, of the princess, ends up being Cinderella, the, the maiden. All, all different types of ways that there's transformed into something to, in different ways, sometimes good, sometimes bad. It kind of reveals uh, what things actually are. The other thing about fairy tales, and, and it's common to almost all of them, can be summarized in the final line of the fairy tale. And they all lived happily ever after. Never had a problem ever again. No one fought. No one got mad at each other. No one put a, an angry social media post out there. No one got a hangnail or splinter. No one, nothing bad ever happened ever again. You know, even when you just think about the quintessential fairy tale plot, um, you know, the the prince who slays the dragon and wins the princess. I mean, just that kind of fairy tale all ends happily, perfectly. Nothing ever bad happens again. And so we know one thing about fairy tales is fairy tales are for children. Because for us as adults, we know what the real world is like. It's not all, everything always doesn't get tied up in a nice, neat bow where everything's always happily ever after. And so almost part of adulthood is we grow out of the naivete of believing that everything's a fairy tale, and we grow into kind of the real world and kind of knowing what to expect from the real world. But see, there's a tension there with that realization as an adult, about what fairy tales really are, is that at the same time we're called by the Bible to have hope. And that's a tension because on one hand, if the fairy tale has been squashed, then we're kind of either left to try and find something else to give us hope or we just kind of end kind of jaded and fatalistic and just expecting things to be bad. So how do we find hope? Like real deep Not fake, not plastered on the outside, not painted on, not made up, but real deep life-giving hope. How do we find that? Well, I want to take us all the way to the very, very beginning of the story, and I want to look at a passage together. It's Genesis chapter 1, and if you are uh, watching online, grab your phone. If you're here, you can grab your phone, uh, Bible app. If you have it, go to Genesis chapter 1 or grab your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1. We are going to start in verse 24. This is the first chapter in the Bible, and it is a, a beautiful, soaring description of of how God made everything that is, and it's broken down into days. God creates for six days. He creates everything, light, and land, and water, and and plants, and animals, and then humans. He makes everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And um, I want to see, we're going to jump in on verse 24. I want to see when God made the animal kingdom, and I want to start there to kind of set our framework of how this chapter looks. Let's pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 1. It says this, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. He makes all of the animals and he looks and he said it's good. Now, I don't know about you, but every now and then I'm kind of like, man, it just seems like I was expecting a little bit of a better reaction from God. You know, it's kind of like he makes all the animals like, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, it's not, it's not bad. You know, it just seems kind of understated. But let's just set the tone for where we're at in history. Remember, this is the first time anything has been called anything. This is defining the category of good. Nothing has ever been called good or bad. Nothing has ever been looked at and assessed ever in history, ever. He's defining the category of good and this is what he does at the end of every single day. He makes the light, he makes the heavens, he makes the earth, he makes the sea, he makes the plants and at the end of every day, he looks at it and says, it is good. He's defining it, the category and the creation. He says, it is good. Now, I want you to see that and how he made every creature according to its kind. And then I want to move to the next verses because here's how it says he makes human beings. And I want you to look, it's, it's different. Look at what it says. We're going to pick it up in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human Now, I want to just, before we go on, I want to just touch on, on one thing, um, even though it's, it's a little bit off the subject. But since we're in this text, and I, I don't want it to be confusing, you have two different phrases here for God. It says, God says, let us, plural, make man in our image. And then later it says, God made um, uh, humans in his image. That's singular. And so you've got in the same Two verses God referred to both in the plural and in the singular, which is confusing. What is it talking about there? And here's what we have. In the very first chapter of the scripture, you have the beginning hints to the nature of who God is, the Trinity. God is Uh, three persons in one being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one being. He's both a plural and a singular. And you say, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into my brain. You're right. It doesn't fit into your brain. And it's something that defies the limits of our logic and rationale. And what I would just add to that Um, Before we jump back to the, the subject matter at hand, what I just add to that is we should not be surprised as God is revealing his nature to us, we should not be surprised that we come across things that don't fit into our brains. Because if everything we're told about God neatly fits into the brains of human beings, it's fishy. It might actually look like humans created God rather than God creating humans. So as we're coming across how God is revealing himself to us, we should not be surprised that we're stretched to comprehend the very nature of God. What God is saying here is he makes humans in his image. Now this is an interesting statement that he only uses for human beings. He doesn't say this about any other part of his creation not the expansive universe, not the the bright stars and the light, not about the animal kingdom, not about plants, not about land, the water, nothing. He says this only about human beings. I have made them uh, in my image. Now, we're familiar with this dynamic because we've seen uh, creatives who have made things in their image. We've seen artists who have painted self-portraits, So, for example, Van Gogh, he painted something like 36 self-portraits. And the reason he did this was not just, you know, ego or narcissism. No, for him personally, he, for much of his life, struggled with mental health. And so, as he painted himself, it was part of his healing process. In fact, there's one point in his uh, career where he checked himself into a hospital to just recuperate and try and find healing of the things that were bothering him. And as he was recuperating, when he was able to paint, he actually painted this self-portrait there at the hospital. Check out this particular self-portrait that he painted. He painted this there at the hospital as he was recuperating. And so art critics have looked at this and even taken from some comments he made about this particular self-portrait. All of this is is Van Gogh communicating things about himself, exploring things about himself, down to the color palette, these deep, rich colors and stark contrast with, uh, with, his, with, with, with him as a person. We see these really heavy brush strokes and all of these things, um, it, they are all picking out nuances of himself that he's exploring. See, with self-portraits, it is, it, it is the artist trying to express something about himself or about herself. But this is a dynamic that is not just for artists. So we do this too. Uh, This past week, our student ministry coordinator, Woodney, many of you know Woodney if you're involved in the student ministry, many of you know Woodney. Woodney was teaching on the same passage, and he had a great illustration about creating in his image. He says he he has this little brother that all growing up, he was trying to make a little Woodney. He dressed him like, like him. He, he cut his hair like him. We, we, this is something that we do. My, my daughter, when she first, my daughter Scarlett, um, our, our oldest daughter, Rebecca and I, she, when she was little, she got a doll. And this is her very first doll. She got it even before she could, she could speak intelligible words. And once she could talk, she named the doll, and she named the doll Baby Scarlett. She named the doll after herself. And it has henceforth always been known as Baby Scarlet. She got a second doll a little later and she named the second doll Other Baby. <laughs> Baby Scarlet and Other Baby. Those are the only names that, that she needed at the time. And it has always been known as, as Other Baby. Okay, we do this. Now think about this. We make things in our image. Why do we make things in our own image? Because we were made... In the image of a being who makes things in his image. So, what this is saying is that God creates every single human being, and through each human being, he's communicating something about himself. It's in his image. Now Here's what I love about this text. And by the way, as we're going through this, just just this one section of one chapter is so profound and rich. I mean, we could splinter off on any number of these just little nuggets and and probably spend a year discussing. And this is one of them. I love that the first chapter in the Bible is, I mean, something like 3,500 years ago was written down. And it expressly states, it pauses to make the point that men and women are made in the image of God. It's not just one or the other. Both masculinity flows as an expression of God and femininity flows out of God as an expression of God. Now, how does God reveal himself? Well, um, here, the scripture reveals God with masculine pronouns. He or him, he refers to himself as father. We're taught to pray to God as our father. When God came to earth in the flesh, he came as a man, Jesus Christ, and so we honor those things. We respect those things. We, we're not going to try and change those things. That's how God has revealed himself. At the same time, let's not miss the places in Scripture where God demonstrates how femininity is flowing out of him and is part of being, of women being made in the image of God. Throughout the prophets, you hear God just calling out to Israel saying, "Oh, I, would, I, would, I, I want to gather you to myself as a mother gathers her children. He says, how could, how could I forget about you, Israel? A woman who's nursed a child will never forget that child. How could I forget you? Even Jesus himself weeps over Israel and says, Like a mother hen, I would have gathered you to myself like chicks gathered to me. See, God is, is, is the source of masculinity, God is the source of femininity. He makes every single human in his image. So, men and men, your masculinity is reflecting something about God. Ladies, your femininity is reflecting something about the nature of God. Do you see the incredible dignity that God is giving to human beings? It's awesome. See, he he made, I mean, God made some incredible things. I mean, when he might look at his creation and say, it's good. We look at creation and we're stunned by it. I mean, it is incredible. For example, let me, let me just show you this picture. I, I think this picture is uh, a picture of the most beautiful bird in the animal kingdom. It is the, the lorikeet, the rainbow lorikeet. Um, you, find this, uh, you can find this in Australia, um, parts of Australia, parts of New Zealand, other parts of the world. I mean, this is just absolutely, like, and that is not like um, an, an enhanced picture of a lorikeet. Um, I mean that—that that is what they look like. Um, I've—I've I've seen one in person. Someone had it as a pet. I've actually seen them. That's what they look like. It's just stunning splash of color. Like it's hard to imagine in one little creature so much vivid color. God, that came out of God's mind. That creature. But how about other parts of the earth? How about this picture of uh, Victoria Falls? This is uh, in Zambia in the southern part of Africa. I mean, one of uh, the largest waterfalls in the entire world. I mean, it is just thunderous and powerful. I mean, striking, roars with power, and yet just so just beautiful and gorgeous and, and scenic. I mean, it, it is just uh, awesome to behold something Something as powerful as that. I mean, any waterfall is beautiful if, you, if, you, if you've seen one. Any rushing water is beautiful, but I mean, God's just showing off in some places. Or how about this? Um, this is a, a picture that um, Hubble took this, this photo earlier this year in April. It took this picture, two nebula in, in one image. And I mean, just think about this picture for a second. I mean, think about... The size of the canvas that God painted that on. It's like a, a canvas the size of a galaxy. Massive. And there are things like this in the far reaches of the universe that humanity will never see. These are the things that God saw, and He said, It's good. But none of those things did he say, but this I'm making in my image. The one who's the source of all glory, all beauty, all power and all majesty. He said this, human beings are made in my image. Look what he says as we keep going let's let's finish out this this chapter verse 28 everything that has the breath of life I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day God specifically says, I am making humans in my image. He says, I am making them in my likeness. Those are the two words he uses uh, a few verses earlier. And then he takes human beings who are made distinctly, made distinctly like him. And he says, I am putting you over all of the earth and giving you dominion over all of the earth. Every corner of the earth, the whole animal kingdom, I am giving you rule over the earth. Again, we could spend a year on that. What does that mean? I mean, that means that we are distinct from creation. We're called to rule over the entire earth. That means we're not guests in any corner of the earth. We're called to lead. But that also doesn't mean, when it says have dominion, that doesn't mean dominate as in crush or abuse. We're steward wisely and caringly so much in there but I want you to see for our purposes this today I want you to see that he's taking humanity and he's doing something different he's saying I've made you in my image I'm making you in my likeness he says and I'm placing you over creation to lead it and of all creation he says something distinct about humanity and at the end what does he say Every other day he says, it's good, it's good, that's good, that's good. But then when humans are on the scene, put in their rightful place, he says, it's very good. That's that's how Genesis 1 ends. But you know how the story plays out. It doesn't stay very good, does it? There's an enemy. Satan, the devil, a fallen angel full of jealousy and anger and and arrogance and pride and lust for glory and greed, and he comes slithering into the Garden of Eden where God has placed Adam and Eve. And uh, he tempts Eve to eat of the tree that God has told them not to eat of, and so Adam and Eve eat of the tree and disobey God, and sin enters into the world and mars this world but I want you to hear how the conversation between Satan and Eve goes. It's, it's really interesting in light of Genesis one. He starts by saying, he says, hey, did God really say you're not allowed to eat of any of the trees? It was like literally the exact opposite of what God just said. She says, no, 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 that's not how it is. We're allowed to eat of all the trees. He's given us all of these trees with every good fruit. There's one tree he told us not to eat of. He says, and then when we eat it, we'll, we'll die. And I want you to hear very closely what the devil says next in Genesis 3. This is two chapters later, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now wait, time out. I thought they already were like God. You know, that is the same word in Genesis 3 in the ancient Hebrew. That's the same word in Genesis 3 that the devil says, oh, you want to be like God? This is what you have to do. Hey, you want to, no, no, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He wants you to, no, so here's what you do. You do my plan so that you can be like God because God's trying to keep you down. That's the same word in the ancient Hebrew used in Genesis 1 where God has already said, I have made humans in my likeness. You see, I want you to see here underneath the original trick, underneath the original lie is the same lie underneath all of the devil's lies which he's weaving into humanity. What he's trying to do is make humans believe that they are less than who God has actually already made them to be. Behind every lie is every every temptation, every trap of the enemy is dehumanizing. Dehumanizing us and leading us to dehumanize other people. Watch how this plays out. Pride. What is pride? Pride is where I look at myself as being superior to other people. And how that plays out is I have certain beliefs, certain standards, certain things that I do, certain gifts, certain things that then I take. Well, this this is me. This is the standard. And I hold everyone else around me to that standard. And if you don't reach the standard of my life, you're not worth my time or you're beneath me or I look down on you because you have to live up to my standard. What am I doing? I am looking around making everyone live up to the likeness of me. I am placing myself on the throne. I'm I'm operating like the universe revolves around me. I'm making myself like God and saying that other people have to live up to the image of me. And by doing that, I'm dehumanizing everyone around me. How about lust? What does lust do? What lust does is it takes human beings, men and women, da- sons and daughters of almighty God, men and women made in the image of God, and it reduces them down to an object. It, re- it objectifies them to be used to gratify the desires or-, or the cravings of a person. That's why the things like pornography, it's not, it's not just a bad thing. It's a satanic thing that is dehumanizing people. That's what's underneath so many of the lies of the enemy. How about greed? What greed says is that there's power or there's money, there's something that I want, and I don't feel whole until I get it. So I'm driven for it. I need it. I want it. I have to have it. I'll stop at nothing to get it. And what I have is not enough. So I'm starting from a place of feeling dehumanized. Not I'm not enough. And I've got to climb after it. And then what I do, if I'm, if I'm driven by greed for power or for resources or for money, then I am willing to climb over anyone I have to, hurt anyone I have to, torpedo anyone I have to, or oppress anyone I have to, to get something to make me feel full. So I start from a place of being dehumanized and dehumanize those around me. See, at its core, Satan's lie is an attack at the reality that human beings are made in the image of Almighty God. He wants to dehumanize us in our own eyes and lead us to dehumanize others. Why would he do that? You know, there's an ancient practice where uh, kings would carve either reliefs or commission, a relief to be carved or a statue to be carved of their own image. And especially it would be after like maybe a a great victory in battle or maybe they conquered another nation or another city, they would have a relief carved of themselves, an image of themselves. And what would happen is if that king was overthrown or conquered, then what would often happen is the ancient army would come through and they wouldn't just destroy all the art, but they would uh, maim that one part of the carving that was the face of the king. So they're literally defacing it. Uh, Let me just show you an example of this. There's a a picture of an ancient relief I want you to see. This is an ancient Babylonian relief. Um, I think it's in the British Museum. And this is, um, that's King Nebuchadnezzar sitting on the throne. And if you saw, these are massive. I mean, they would, they're these huge um, uh, relief, they're these, uh, carvings into walls and you see all of these detailed intricate carvings down to just even the the feet on the throne and and the 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 fabric I mean just the carvings carving the fabric of each individual and and uh the the curls in their hair and yet if you look at the face of king Nebuchadnezzar on the throne which uh, an army when they overtook this particular palace they they maimed the face of Nebuchadnezzar do you see that Do you see that the the carving, the etching, they etched out his face. They wanted to dishonor him by defacing the image of him. What does the devil want to do? He wants to deface the images of God, he wants to maim human beings maybe out of jealousy, maybe out of envy, maybe out of a lust for glory, maybe out of a hatred for God. He wants to deface humans. He wants to dehumanize them. He wants to dehumanize us. And so he he tempted Adam and Eve and sin and brokenness entered into the world. And he's not capable of completely decreating us. He can't make us not in the image of God, but, but there's brokenness now in each one of us, isn't there? But God's not going to leave it like that. As the story, we're starting in the first chapters. As the story continues, we learn that, man, all of creation is groaning and waiting for a Messiah. And the Messiah comes. It's Jesus Christ. It's God entering into his creation himself, the perfect perfect example of human life. But then what happens? He's, he's arrested, he's rejected, he's mocked, he's falsely accused, and then he's maimed. And as he's hanging there on the cross, he's been beaten and whipped and pierced to a point of being barely recognizable as a human, a maimed, violent, grisly picture of humanity. Why? Because in so doing, he's taken all the sin of the world, all the shame, and he's absorbing it on himself to pay for it, and he dies, and on the third day, he rises again, and so doing, he's defeating death, and if he's defeating death, think of all that he's defeating when he's rising again from the dead, he's defeating evil, and all that's bad, and wicked, and sin, and shame, and guilt, and even death itself, he's redeeming as he rises again from the dead, then what he says is, he says, I'm offering that as a sacrifice to any human being, Whoever puts their faith in Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, it's you that saves me. Here's what happens. It's not just they get heaven one day. They do. But listen to what happens along the way. He says, when you put your faith in Jesus, he says, you are a new creation. You're new as a creation. And specifically, you've got to see what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Look what he says. Verse 24. And to put on the new self created after the, look at that. After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the story. You were made in the image of God and nothing can take that from you. But God, seeing the work that sin has done in each one of our lives, He sent Jesus, the Messiah. And through Jesus, we're recreated and He's bringing us back, recreating us in the likeness of Almighty God, the source of all glory and majesty and beauty. That's what he's doing. And so if that's the story, then here's what that means for us. That means anytime we see the work of the enemy, and we know what's behind it, anytime we see a work trying to dehumanize those God God made in his image. We stand against it. Anytime we see a precious human life that God loves, that has a soul, and anytime we see a human being and the work of Satan to dehumanize that being, we fundamentally stand against it. Because it works, through the enti- works against the entire story of what God is trying to do in redeeming humanity. So that makes this weekend an interesting weekend. There are, are two things that churches all across our country are remembering this weekend. One of those things is what's commonly called the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's today. And Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is, um, this particular weekend is, is picked because of its close proximity to the Roe versus Wade trial. And this is when Christians are reminded and remind ourselves of what the scripture says about human life. The humans are made in the image of God. And specifically in Psalm 139, it says that we are knit together in our mother's womb. It says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so Christians stand and say, no, we're not going to let human life in the womb be dehumanized. We're gonna stand for what the scripture says about life and about human life. Also this weekend, churches all over the country, and really our entire, our entire country, is celebrating uh, MLK Day uh, tomorrow. It's a day that we commemorate the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and his life. And we remember that it's the day is picked because of its proximity to his birthday. And so Christians talk about and celebrate the life of a man who stood on biblical principles and stood up and proclaimed against the people who were being dehumanized and people who were being treated as inferior. And he called on He called on on a nation, he called on churches, he called on Christians to stand on the biblical truth that every single human being, regardless of gender, of race, of skin color, every human being is made in the image of God to reflect something about God. And so we celebrate that. Because any time a person, a human being, is being dehumanized... We stand against that work. There's so much, so many implications of being made in the image of God. And we're gonna continue the discussion and the dialogue on these things of how we're made in the image of God over the the coming weeks. But, But here's where we land just for today. What the scripture says is every human is made in the image of God. And so what we need to do is look inside our hearts and see where we, we believe the lie of the enemy that we're not. So for starters, for some, it's just hard for us to believe that about ourselves. God, it's hard for me to believe that I'm made in your image, God. And maybe as you look inside, you see things, man, I I just wish this wasn't about me. I I wish I wasn't made like this. I wish you didn't make me like this. Or maybe someone's made you feel inferior. And sure, there are broken things inside each one of us, things that through the Holy Spirit, God is redeeming and, and transforming in each one of us. And that is a wonderful work that we're so grateful he's doing. But don't miss the fact that he wired you and knit you together because he wants you to reflect something About himself. You are made in the image of God. Let that incredible, the incredible dignity that he speaks about who you are just strike you with awe today. Don't give in to things like envy and jealousy, wishing he had made you something else. Be reminded that you've been made in the image of God. That's amazing. But also look in where we're believing the lie that others. Are not. I think every single human being, in one way or another, there's one person that's hurt us or wounded us or one group of people that we disagree with or we, we are mad at or we've been hurt by. And so a common part of being human is uncovering where you look down on someone else as inferior. And what this passage challenges us to do is look inside our own hearts and confront that because anywhere there's a lack of compassion or empathy for a human being, it's not treating that human being with the dignity they were created in the image of God. Would we have the courage to look inside and let this truth not only change how we view ourselves, but change how we view every single other human being, man, woman, and child, womb to tomb, male, female, no matter their background, ethnicity, no matter eye color, hair color, skin color, no matter what, every single human is made in the image of God, and we will stand by that and protect that. You know, we started at the beginning of the story in these first couple chapters, but as we close, let's go to the very end couple chapters of the Bible. How does the whole story end? Here's the imagery. It describes a king coming roaring out of heaven on a steed to do battle. And the battle that he does is, a, is against a great enemy, a great beast who's held captive, someone he loves. And he fights that battle to save her. Here's how it's described. Let me just go to the last chapter and read, last couple chapters and read you a few verses. This is Revelation chapter 21 verse 2. He says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away. Every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Did you hear that? Is the end of this story. That is the end of the story of all of creation. A king riding down on a steed to fight off a dragon, to fight off an enemy and a beast. Why? To redeem for himself a bride. And at the end, they will live together, God with man for all of eternity. What does that sound like to you? The end of a fairy tale. Except in this story, it doesn't say anything just so weak as they lived happily ever after. It doesn't say anything just so faint and and so powerless as they live happily ever after. No, that's not what the end of the story of the creation we're a part of says. That's not the end of God's story. No, what he says is in the end, all evil will be defeated permanently. And all of humans will dwell with their creator. He will be the light to them. They will worship him. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. Evil will be no more. There'll be no more pain, no more darkness. And they will dwell forever and ever and ever and ever in eternity. Eternity with God Almighty. Now that is a good happy ending. Is that good news for you, Christian? That is the end of all creation. That is what all of creation is longing for. But you say, you know what? I I mean, but fairy tales are for children, right? You're exactly right. They're for children. And that's why God said, unless you have the faith of a child... You can't enter in. And maybe it's all of this longing from culture after culture after culture that dares to believe in these fairy tales. It's this expression of humanity longing for the one great true story that God is enacting through creation. And maybe humans, we can dare to hope that he is making what's true in heaven with his kingdom, that he would make his kingdom come down to earth as well. And maybe we can dare to hope if we keep revealing Jesus Christ, we keep revealing the work of Jesus Christ in our city, maybe we can dare to hope that we will see the city revolutionized like it's revolutionized our lives. And we'll see transformation happening as people are upheld and be reminded that they're made in the image of God and and, an incredible soaring dignity that we can barely dare to believe in. But maybe for some of you, it's entering into that story and saying, I I want to know once and for all that I'm a part of that story. I I want to know that I'm in Jesus. That that happy ending, what you just read, is the ending of my life. I wanna begin, I I wanna be a part of that process where he's recreating me making me again in his likeness. And maybe you want to take that step. And so if that's you, I want to lead you in just a simple prayer. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a second? And maybe you're wanting to take that step. If that's you and you're saying, look, I'm, I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. I'm ready to surrender to Jesus. I don't want to just sprinkle religion into my life. No, I'm ready to turn my life over once and for all. He's my king. He's my Lord. He's my savior. I'm following him. I want to know that I'm saved. I want to take that step. Would you do that right now? And by doing that, I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer just right there in your seat. Just silently make this your prayer to God, whether you're here or you're watching at home. Just make this your prayer. Say, God, thank you that you saved me. I believe. I believe Jesus came to pay for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. I I believe he defeated all wicked and evilness in this world. And I want to be a part of his mission to bring that about as a reality here in my own way, my own part that you've called me to do. So I surrender to you, Jesus. I want to know I'm going to spend eternity with you in heaven. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.